0: Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.ValleyBaitMidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. So many
1: lifelong learners. Um, the topic today has, uh, where do I put this, has really a double agenda. On the one hand, we want to talk theology about the role of doubt in religious belief. And on the other hand, I want to introduce you to the thought of Haraf Kuk. How many of you know about Haraf Kuk? Okay. What do you know about him? What sort of um, associations come to mind?
2: I a Musar teacher.
1: Not specially. <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you say Musar teacher? Um, in the Musar that I studied, he often quoted. And okay. Discussed. Okay. Yeah? Uh
2: huh.
1: Okay. I don't bridge the gap across controversy. Yeah, but the truth is, yeah, there's something to be said. Yeah. Um, The one thing I know
2: about Ralph Cook is that um, his writing is often used to defend Jewish vegetarianism.
1: Uh huh. Okay. Yeah.
0: That Martin,
2: he only had chicken
1: on Shabbos, the little piece, and a mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. also he loved all Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I was expecting some of the answers that you gave because uh, Rav Cook, if he is at all known in the States, and even in Israel, he's mainly uh, famous for uh, what are regarded or attributed to him as uh, the political views of the Jewish settlement movement. Uh, I have doubts whether uh, everything that is being said in his name in connection with Israeli politics, uh, he would really have uh, uh, been happy with. Uh, But my mission today is to introduce you to a a different aspect of Haraf Kuk, which uh, is less known and I think very, very important, and that is his uh, theology. Uh, I think theology is a very... um, neglected aspect of uh, Jewish teaching uh, in America and in American Judaism and in general. Uh, And certainly in traditional circles, when we talk theology, it's very very often presented in simplistic nursery-like terms uh, and um, set down as something dogmatic and pat, and we know the answers, Um, whereas Rav Kook. Uh, was a person who really um, acknowledged conflicts and talked about them quite candidly in his own personal writings. Um, uh, He expresses all sorts of tensions in his writings. Sometimes they are the tensions of a person who really is interested in having a very intense uh, spiritual uh, uh, life Uh, of his own and on the other hand he feels a very strong responsibility for the community and the tension between the two often bothered him very much that is on the one hand he was uh, a visionary who really talked, uh, this was one of the things that attracted me to him, a person who had a rabbi who had personal diaries and talked in uh, first-person language and uh, had uh, experiences that for him were close to prophecy. And on the other hand, he uh, certainly felt a communal responsibility and that uh, he, he couldn't indulge himself in this kind of uh, intense, very uh, personal life. Um, he writes, for example, a poem... Um, I'm translating into English. He's really untranslatable, and even his Hebrew is full of all sorts of mystic illusions that are very difficult to uh, decipher. He writes, expanses, expanses, my soul desires. Don't uh, close me up in any cage, not a physical one, not a spiritual one. I wish to roam the heavens, and on the other hand, I can't leave the flocks behind me, um, that sort of thing. And there are also the attentions of a person who uh, was um, committed to extreme uh, conservatism in religious experience. Um, In Jerusalem, when he was invited uh, on Shabbatot sometimes to talk to the B'nai Akiva youth movement, um, when he would enter the room, uh, there would be uh, boys and girls. And after, he would give a shayur. They would ask questions, and when the girls asked, he would veil his eyes because this was a person who le- never looked a woman in the face from the age of three. That was the sort of tr- tradition he was brought up on. And on the other hand, there is also a very uh, anti-nomistic, uh, anarchic um, uh, temperament to him as well. That's another sort of tension. There's a the tension between a person who brought up in the uh, tradition of dry Lithuanian learning which very much op- occupied him. And the other, on the other hand, he acknowledged that he was a, a poet and he was drawn to Agadah and to Midrash and to Hasidic uh, work. And these were, this was another sort of tension. And um, once when Ravkuk wrote several articles that expressed these kind of tensions, his name, neighbor, the secular writer Yudchet Brenner, um, who uh, Rav Cook's personality and his, uh, uh, all, all the talk of light that he spoke about used to bother him. He said, he, All he sees is light, light, and I just see darkness. Uh, when he saw these uh, expressions of conflict in Rav Cook, he uh, wrote, um, Whoever writes that kind of t- stuff uh, testifies. That the spasms of the souls of heretics are not strange to him at all. Um, quite the opposite. Um, in other words, what he's trying to say, Rav Kook, he's not so from. If you scratch hard enough, you'll see that he's really one of us. To which Rav Kook replied, and I'm translating into English: "Whoever said of me that my soul is torn said well." Of course it's torn. We can't imagine any human being who is not possessed of a torn soul. Only the inanimate is whole. But man possesses contradictory wishes and always has an internal war raging within him. And all man's endeavor is to unite the opposing tendencies of his soul by some comprehensive idea which in its grandeur can include all. Of course, this is only a dream that no human being can truly achieve. But in the trying, we can come, approach it closer and closer. And this is what the mystics mean by the term yichudim, mystic unifications. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that Rav Kook was not the type of person whose religious life was something smug, pat, tranquil. He was quite uh, openly, torn and conflicted, and in that sense he was one of us. But perhaps being able to see one of us torn and conflicted in such an exquisite manner as Rav Kook is a privilege and bears promise of a rare type of lesson. So before we begin to discuss how Rav Kook viewed doubt, perhaps it's more important to talk about how he viewed faith. And when we're talking about how Rav Kook viewed faith, perhaps more important than the content of that faith is what he understood faith to be altogether. And here, the first thing to be said is that given Rav Cook's traditionalism, he was surprisingly skeptical regarding the ability of any religious formulation to to capture truth finally and completely. In this sense, Rev Cook was definitely a modern who accepted all the repercussions of what has come to be known as the Copernican revolution in the theory of knowledge which Kant attributed to himself. What do I mean by that? What was the Copernican revolution? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, once we used to think that the earth was center of everything, and the sun and all the planets revolve around it. And Copernicus taught us that it works the other way around. Said Kant, I am instituting a Copernican revolution in the theory of knowledge. Once upon a time we thought that reality was something stable and static, and our mind revolves around it and captures it as it is. Whereas, said Kant, And now we know that that is not the case and that the human mind actually structures knowledge. Kant talked about the noumenal reality, in other words, what he called the thing as it is in itself. And then there is also the phenomenal reality, meaning how we capture what is. And Kant maintained that our grasp of the noumenal reality is never straight and unmediated, because in between the phenomena and the noumenal reality, there is a filter, the filter of the categories of reason and human thought. Human beings think in terms of ter- time, we think in terms of space, we think in terms of causality, and all these categories structure, impose a structure on what is, so that we never get raw chunks of reality unfiltered. What does Rav Cook have to say about that? He doesn't think, and now you can look at your first source. He doesn't think that this is a chidush of Kant. He says, is there a problem? You don't all have the sources? Oh, yeah,
0: there's someone's idea.
1: It is true, and we have always known it, meaning we, meaning the Jews, and did not need Kant to reveal this secret to us, that all human cognitions are relative and subjective. This is Malchut, take, uh, just now I'll explain a vessel that has no power of its own, and the congregation of Israel, or moon, that receives illumination. Let me stop here. Rav Kook suggests that the innovation of Kant was always known in the mystic tradition of Judaism. The mystic tradition of Judaism speaks about God being the infinite one, the Ensof, Which is like the noumenal reality in Kant. And then there are a series, there is a series of 10 emanations or manifestations of the Ensof. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the Mm Sfirot. And the last Sfira is called Malchut, Kingdom. And according to the Kabbalah, this is a derivative uh, light which has no power of its own. In other words, the other Sfirot, chokhmah, binah, Chesed, Gvura, they all have their own particular, as it were, personality, whereas Malchut is an empty vessel and receives the light from all the others and transfers them to our world. Uh, so Rav Kook sees in this image of a, an original Ensof, and then the the, uh, different uh, Sfirot, which are parallel to the categories of thought, and then Malchut, that receives them all in a a derivative manner. And he says "This this is Kant's idea. All our acts, our emotions, our prayers, our thoughts, everything is dependent on Zot, which in the Zohar is another word for Malchut. B'zot ani boteach, in this I will trust. In other words, we are always only getting any impression of the thing as it is in itself, or the infinite one, through zot, through the filter of malchut. And then he goes on to say, because of this, it is impossible to know the true nature of any person, not even of oneself, and certainly not of another, not of an individual, and certainly not of a people, we are engaged in conjectures, in approximations, judging on the basis of outer behavior, which for the most part is concealed to us, especially the causes behind the acts. We must conclude that our knowledge in this area is feebly based, and only God can judge. In other words, here he's saying also that all we have is the phenomenal reality, and we never know directly the thing as it is in itself. The striking um, uh, phenomenon is that he is prepared to apply this kind of epistemological skepticism regarding religious dogma as well. And that is the next uh, source. From the perspective of the higher divine truth there is no difference whatsoever between conventional religious belief and heresy. Conventional, that isn't uh, translated, There not quite uh, formulated religious belief. Uh, in Hebrew, it's emunam tsuyeret, formulated religious belief and heresy. Neither of them offers the truth. And in another version of this uh, source, uh, uh, this, uh, what's in brackets, was added. Since whatever positive assertion one makes is negated by the truth of the divine, so he said, from the point of view of absolute truth, from the point of view of ensof, there is no difference between heresy and uh, religious, uh, uh, formulated religious belief. Neither of them captures the thing as it is in itself. So they are both in in, the, in an absolute sense. They are both equally off the mark.
2: Um,
1: But why then prefer the religious belief? From our point of view, belief appears closer to the truth and heresy to falsehood. And we therefore see good and evil as deriving from these two opposites. And the whole world, including all of its spiritual and material values, is from our perspective. And from our perspective, truth is revealed in faith and is the source of good and evil in heresy and is the source of evil. But with respect to the light of Ensof, the infinite one, all is the same. Heresy too is the manifestation of a life force encompassing a higher illumination within it and for this reason, those who are of strong spirit draw from it many good sparks and transform its bitterness to sweetness. In this section, we see that the reason to prefer religion or a religious formula, truth formulation as opposed to heretic truth formulation is not in terms of its, uh, that one corresponds more faithfully to what is than the other, but for more pragmatic reasons because truth appears to us closer to the truth and... Um, uh, uh, uh makes us uh, develops our moral ability and uh, uh, heresy uh, the opposite. Now that kind of contention is a debatable contention. Uh, but that is debatable be, uh, if you take morality as it's generally understood as the ability to comply with a certain set of mor- norms. For of Cook morality, is something much more broad. Morality is the basic urge, which he sees as a religious urge, uh, that he he sees it as animating not only all human beings, but even all of creation at large. And it's a kind of a platonic idea of an urge to return to the perfection of the source. And he believes, again, you could debate this as well, but he believes that religion in its optimism, in its faith, in in its uh, sense of hope, in its uh, advocation of uh, responsibility for the other, whatever, it advances us more in this moral urge than uh, uh, perhaps more heretical or materialistic uh, systems of thought. He would say that even Marxism determined, uh, all sorts of isms really are animated by a move to, uh, to, to improve but that religion, in its uh, spiritual orientation, uh, develops it further so that it is preferable from a pragmatic or instrumentalist point of view, but not because it corresponds more to truth than in any other position, which is quite a revolutionary idea. Um, And uh, he develops this idea further in the next passage, uh, referring to Maimonides, who uh, in his Guide of the Perplexed makes a distinction between two types of belief, true beliefs and necessary beliefs. All beliefs are divided into the two categories which Maimonides already noted, true beliefs and necessary beliefs. True beliefs, according to Maimonides, uh, he's talking about the theological principles of faith, that there is a God, that he is one, that he is unique, and so forth, um, the, all these theological principles, they serve as the base which upholds faith at large, while necessary beliefs are like an outer peel, protecting the fruit in accordance with the respective level of any nation and group that rallies around under the banner of a particular faith. According to Maimonides, if true beliefs are the existence of God, that he is one, unique, whatever, uh, uh, necessary beliefs are, for example, that God hears our prayers, or that God gets angry. He believes that these are formulations which are necessary for the common people, because otherwise they can't picture God altogether, but they are not true beliefs. They are necessary for the orderly running of society. They are necessary for religious education, but they are not the truths of the philosophers. We have to go along with them, but they are not true beliefs. Says, the Ram, uh, says Rav Kook um, that these necessary beliefs are like the outer peel uh, holding the fruit, but the purity, strength, clarity, and rationality of those accompanying factors in other words the necessary beliefs and their compatibility with the purest demands of morality and the brightest lights of science will accord precisely with the degree of exaltation eternity and truth of the basic faith that it protects in other words these necessary beliefs even according to Maimonides the necessary beliefs are relative to the quality of the uh, fruit that is inside occasionally a force will appear to demand the removal of some aspect of necessary belief from the realm of faith. This is because the level of the community involved has already reached a stage according to which the support of that necessary aspect in the construal of faith is no longer required. At this point, a type of ferment will arise. So Rav Cook is saying that necessary beliefs, as opposed to the Rambam, are not constant. They change from time to time it in accordance with the development of the fruit inside. The, the more rarefied, the more uh, qualitative the fruit inside, the more the peel also has to fit that fruit, so that when there is a need to shed the peel, that actually is a sign that we have graduated from kindergarten to first grade. So uh, he says, on the one hand, this looks like a breach in the foundation of faith, and on the other hand, an illumination and a shedding of light on the religious horizon, which adds to its strength. So there are two sides to this. On the one hand, it seems very destructive when we have to shed certain necessary beliefs that we've grown up with and are part of our tradition, and uh, perhaps are commonly accepted by everybody around us. But on the other hand, this is also a sign that we are developing in our religious development. And he said, in truth, both contentions are true. Not all people, and this is another important principle, not all people and not all factions of the community will be blessed at one and the same time. And occasionally it will will happen that one faction already reaches a level in its cognitive and cultural development according to which the necessary aspect of its belief is no longer required. In such a situation, that aspect becomes something superfluous that impedes the spiritual progress of that faction, the holiness of its soul, and its ability to soar. But with regard to the faction that has not yet achieved this state, the necessity remains intact. Removing it would amount to the clipping of saplings and a destruction of faith. So you can't be standard about these things. Necessary beliefs really have to be um, adjusted according to the spiritual status or the uh, in, uh, religious development of the person or the community in concerned, And for some people, a shattering of certain necessary beliefs is absolutely essential, otherwise they're going to feel squashed. And for other people, to try and advance them before their time would be religiously and spiritually destructive. And then he has another category, the necessary beliefs of Maimonides. There are necessary beliefs in general, and there are also necessary beliefs of Maimonides, which are part of his 13 Principles of Faith. They are the means by which the style of faith is established, and they are embedded in the nature of man, so that it is impossible that someone should uproot these images of faith from his heart without also upro- uprooting the higher truths which are the basis of truth as it really is. And nevertheless, or we'll stop here, he's saying there are necessary truths which are relative to the person, relative to society. There are also necessary beliefs that they are not true, but nevertheless, they are necessary for humanity as a whole. And you never can shed them because we need those crutches in order to talk about the thing as it is in itself, but they still are crutches. They, they are something that human beings as such need. We can't shed them, but know that they are crutches. And nevertheless... Many innovations are introduced regarding the relationship to these necessary beliefs, but the inner truth remains forever. If you want, he doesn't say which of uh, Maimonides' um, uh, principles are these necessary beliefs that always remain, but you might, uh, for example, uh, apply this to the concept of divine providence, which Rambam had a, a complicated uh, Relationship or a complicated understanding of divine providence, and he certainly didn't think that it was extended to every individual as such. But nevertheless, says Rav Cook, this if if it if it is divine providence, he's referring to and reward and punishment and some other things. These may not be true truths, but these are necessary truths that all human beings need to yeah. Uh, does
0: Rav Cook ever? equate this concept
2: of necessary truth to the mitzvot?
1: No. <laughs> and, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does have a vision of uh, the times, uh, la atid la vo, how do you, uh, the time in the future, the
2: future,
1: the future that will come, in which we will not, uh, certain, certain mitzvot will become uh, extinct and all of the mitzvot we will perform not as mitzvot, but because we naturally want to. They won't be mitzvot anymore.
0: I'm
1: going to ask you for that source. Okay. Okay. Um, and just to um, uh, see another formulation of this same idea, the, the, the um, um, constructive importance of, uh, of uh, religious beliefs. Human formulations of the nature of existence, whatever they be, surely also have some impact on man's moral development and the rest of his lofty goals, each generation in accordance with its formulations, which change continually. But the objective is to attune everything to the purpose of the general good and the grace of the eternal God. What he is saying here is something like what Clifford Geertz, the sociologist, says about religion, that uh, uh, religion uh, presents us with models of and models for society. In other words, they not only reflect what we believe, but they also have a formative influence on what we believe and how we can believe. So it's not a matter of... uh, uh, um, uh, that's inconsequential which religious beliefs we adopt and which not, because we have to consider to what extent do they have a positive influence in constructing our spirituality. So far, everything that we have done is introduction, and now we're going to see some examples of how a Rav Cook applies this. Um, relationship between our beliefs and our spiritual development, uh, and implies also that when new models of reality uh, come upon us, it isn't a matter of chance, but really is an unconscious response to new spiritual needs. Not only are Religious beliefs, but even our scientific models of reality, have a formative influence, and we don't come upon them by chance. They are somehow related to our spiritual needs.
2: Or spiritual needs, or to some sort of continuing divine revelation?
1: Well, you, uh, you can take it either way. You can, you can either understand it as if you have uh, an image of personalist God then God is watching over us, and when he sees that we uh, need something new, he throws out the trigger to this idea. Or if you have a non-personalist uh, view of God, then we discover and unfold another aspect of, his, of himself. Yeah?
0: Okay. What, what, what ultimately is roots, what roots Torah, or the larger enterprise of Judaism? What's the anchor as all this evolution
1: continues to occur? We're continually unfolding more and more of God's infinity. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Do you, I, it doesn't look like What's it. What's the unchanging? There's, there's, uh, the unchanging is what, what we began with. That is, that is the, That is the basis. And on that, we build and build and build. And in the building, sometimes the meaning of the basis gets transformed simply because of the structures. We don't change it. We don't remove it. But the structures that uh, it's like, you can take a pattern of, uh, you take a white disk, a white disk, a white disk, a white disk, and, white disk, and suddenly you put in a black disk. So you think, ah, the pattern is four whites and then black. But then you can go uh, like 10 whites and black. In other words, what, what the pattern is, only emerges finally at the end and it can change drastically by what happens afterwards. How you understand what was in the beginning changes drastically. Okay. we about truth? Yeah. And what is truth?
2: Is truth not another name or another aspect for God? absolute truth?
1: Except, according to the... Mis- uh, and Rav Cook is talking from a mystic point of view, what we are ultimately seeking is an entity in which the distinction between truth and God doesn't exist. In other words, uh, 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 God is really also just a, a particular name which is for what is more than God. When we say God, then always we are contrasting it with the world. But what we are, the the mystic is ultimately seeking, is a reality in which there are no contrasts. It's beyond definition. It's before definition, beyond definition. But we can never talk that way because we're here. The minute you start talking, you're thinking about. When you're thinking about, then there is a distinction between subject and object. So it's a paradox. But we keep trying. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been
0: enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: So here's a, uh, an example from ancient times. The crux of the matter is that the time of the appearance and the effects of every idea and thought is predetermined. In other words, he's already telling us here that uh, what we think is not a matter of chance. Nothing is haphazard. For example, now here he brings sort of quaint example which looks somewhat primitive, so let's forgive him. But he says, for example, we can understand that if the act of the globe's movement was made known to the masses a few thousand years ago, man would have feared to stand on his feet lest he fall from the force of the Earth's movement. All the more so would he have feared building tall buildings. A general faint-heartedness and incalculably thwarted development would have resulted. In other words, in ancient times, If people would have known what we know today, that the Earth revolves around its axis, Mm -hmm. that would have been very destructive to human creativity because human beings would think if I build a building, it's going to fall apart like a badly uh, built Lego system or something. Mm
2: -hmm. People in China stand their heads in the
1: ground. (laughs) (laughs) The notion of a gravitational force would not have assured him. Even if we had known the laws of gravity, then that wouldn't have quelled us having seen with his own eyes that anything standing on a moving object cannot be secure from falling. Only after mankind matured through experience was it proper to allow men to recognize the earth's movement so that from it only good would come to man. So, as it were, spared us that that, uh, revolutionary notion, revolutionary pun not intended or (laughs) intended, yeah, Uh, until we built up enough self-confidence that we could handle it and still build buildings. But now he applies it to spirituality as well. For example, the notion of God's involvement in man's world is the basis of mankind's morality and success. When this notion is clearly understood in the world, it will be the foundation of life's happiness. So we need, we need, moral, we need the um, idea of, of um, God's uh, providence over the world in order to secure our morality, just like uh, we won't stop uh, in front of traffic lights in the middle of the night unless we know that there are police somehow watching somewhere, okay? It was necessary. So, uh, so on the one hand, we, we need, we need for the f- moral flourishing, we need the idea that God watches, Uh, It was necessary for the people of Israel to work long and hard with the various pagan sects to make them understand that despite the vastness of the universe, man is not so inconsequential that his adherence to moral directives is without value and that the creation of man as a moral being is of great significance incalculably greater than even the quali- quantitatively largest creations. So, Am Israel, the Jewish people had a hard time. They had, on the one hand, to convince that uh, God watches over things, and uh, he cares whether we turn on the light switch on Shabbat or not. And on the other hand, he is transcendent, great, important. Those, those are two contradictory notions which they had to assimilate. Indeed, it was not easy to inculcate even a modicum of this notion while preserving an inner awareness of the glory of God, which in its essence is the fundamental principle for moral perfection and that of creation as a whole in both physical and spiritual life for now and eternity. All this work was required to harmonize in man's heart the spectacle of the greatness of the cosmos and man's lowliness on the one hand, an awareness of the great hand of God's involvement on the other hand, to show how he supersedes and transcends the conventional value of all creatures. In other words, we, they had a hard job to do, on the one hand, to talk about God's graciousness, and on the other hand, to talk about the importance of what we do, and God cares about every little thing we do. And so he asks, what would have happened if the myriad worlds according to the present state of science were known then. In other words, he's implying that God with, or we purpose uh, uh, unconsciously did not discover the vastness of the universe then, because then to hold the idea A, of God's transcendence, B, his uh, uh, concern over every little thing we do, and C, that the world is huge, That would have been too much to handle, okay? Man would have been like a speck and his morality of no consequence, and it would have been impossible to foster within him a sense of greatness and universal glory. Only now, after man's emergence from his struggle with an image of a world of overwhelming immensity, he is truly no longer frightened by the vastness of creation. You could say also that now that we've developed our maybe overdeveloped our self-confidence, and we say we can do anything that it was a good idea to send down or for us to discover a model of reality where we're not so big after all. We're just a speck in a huge thing. But all this required um, only now. He's no longer truly uh, uh, no longer frightened by the vastness of creation. But all this required time and preparation, The narrative descriptions of the stories of creation, whether understood through the rational perspective of empirical inquiry or interpreted as God's revelations through his prophets, must always bear the power to strengthen the life and success of man. Okay, When you understand this, you will know that there is sublime value in what is revealed and also in what is hidden. In other words, what he's telling us is that ideas, pictures of reality... Models of science are not a matter of chance. They come in response to certain spiritual needs when we are ready for them. Okay. So now we see this in this example. Another example is, um, if you want biblical criticism, how much should we, we have to hurry?
2: No.
1: Okay. No. All the time in the world?
0: We can't Forty minutes.
1: Ah, okay.
0: But we'll leave room for
1: at the end. Okay. Uh, because we could skip some examples if you want. There is a heresy that amounts to an affirmation of faith and an affirmation of faith that amounts to heresy. He's saying sometimes people say, oh yes, I believe in this and that. And Rav Kook is saying, even though you say, oh yes, you believe, it really is heretical. And sometimes people say, I No way, I can't believe in this, and it's really faith. How so? A person may affirm that the Torah is from heaven, but the picture of heaven that he envisions is so weird (laughs) that nothing of true faith remains. I'm going to ask you to think about what he's talking about when he, what's he imagining when he says so weird. And how might heresy amount to affirmation of faith when a person denies belief in Torah for heaven but his denial is based merely on what he has absorbed of the picture of heaven construed by minds filled with ludicrous and nonsensical thoughts. So one person says, I believe in heaven, but it's heresy because he's got a weird picture of heaven. And another person says, I don't believe in Torah from heaven, but the reason why is because he's looking at the guy who professes religious belief and says, that's nutty. And uh, therefore, I can't believe in it.
2: Is Kuprin saying that someone who says, "I don't believe that God dictated on Mount Sinai hmm. the entire five books of the Torah," okay, because that's nonsensical? Because it, you know, okay, it just wouldn't work. He's saying that that person might actually be expressing a religious yeah.
1: If you want to take it here, you might say that the whole flourishing of biblical... He didn't take it that uh, ex, ex, No, not so far, but he didn't, he didn't say expressly that... He, he really, in his time, um, biblical criticism was regarded uh, as uh, somewhat of an anti-Semitic force. It was uh, often used as a, a, a tool to uh, hit at uh, the Jews. So he didn't like... Um, much of the study of biblical criticism, but on the other hand, he has many responses to questions of biblical criticism, and he certainly would buy the idea of historical development. Uh, not as far as we... Uh, he wasn't exposed even to the kind of questions we're exposed today, but to a certain extent. Uh, so certainly one of the... When he says the picture of heaven is so weird, you might, exam- you might, uh, for example, think that he's... Uh, trying to negate the picture of a Cecil B. De, DeMille movie in which you have these strong, muscular arms of God and giving Moshe Benu the two tablets, and Moshe is coming down, sorry to me, and giving it to the people and saying, come on, that's not what revelation can be. Uh, but I, I think we can extract even something more sophisticated from that here um, in a moment. So such a person says, the Torah must stem from a source higher than this, from this gross anthropomorphic picture of God in Revelation. And he begins to find its basis in the grandeur of the spirit of man, in the depth of his morality, and in the height of his wisdom. Although such a person, which uh, many people today say uh, the Torah is a great book, but it's a book that reflects uh, human genius, uh, although such a person may not have reached the center point of truth, not, nonetheless, this heresy is akin to affirmation of faith, and it progresses towards affirmation of faith at its root. And to raff- oh, oh, uh, stop here. Um, beyond the objection to anthropomorphism, I would like to eke out of this passage, because I know of other passages of Rav Koch, that he's also suggesting that the picture of the Torah being imposed in what uh, unidirectionally from God to man as something foreign that's forced upon him from without is not a correct reflection of how revelation takes place. And the person who says it must stem from the grandeur of the spirit of man and the depth of his morality and the height of his wisdom... He is preferable to the first picture because the Torah resonates to something within him. And Rav Cook would favor the blurring of the distinction between the human and the divine in the giving of the Torah and understand human participation in the giving of the Torah as also part of Revelation. So that for him, the idea of a person saying the Torah resonates with something inside me and that's how I explain the Torah. He's already identifying instinctively with the content of the Torah and not seeing it something uh, foreign from without and that's a better state of affairs even though he says that's not the complete truth because he doesn't deny an element of transcendence and revelation altogether. And then he goes on to say in Torah from Heaven, is a, but an example for all the generalities and particulars of religious doctrine regarding the relation between their linguistic impre- expression and their inner essence, the latter being the true object of faith. So what is, is, is he saying here? When I say I believe in Torah from heaven, what's important is not the literal meaning that the Torah comes from up there, but rather its inner essence which is a feeling of identification with the Torah. And that is the importance of religious doctrine. Okay, another example um, which really served as the basis for uh, the uh, name of my book that uh, Rav Shmuley showed you previously. Uh, the, uh, here he is writing to a disciple of his, who uh, taught Tanakh in Yerushalayim and was uh, concerned how he would be able to teach the first chapters of Genesis about the creation of man and uh, Adam and Eve and the banishment of um, Adam and Eve from uh, the Garden of Eden uh, when we have the theory of evolution, says Rav Cook. I necessarily find myself obligated to awaken your pure spirit in regard to the theories that have emerged from new research, which for the most part contradicts the literal meaning of the Torah. My opinion on this is that anyone with common sense should know that although there is no necessary truth in all these... uh, one second. The theories. at any rate, we are not in the least bit obligated to decisively refute and oppose them because the Torah's primary objective is not to tell us simple facts and events of the past. So we don't judge the Torah in terms of its correspondence with scientific theory. It's not as if the Torah and science... Uh, which is very often in religious circles. Uh, that's, that's the way it's presented. They're, uh, as it were, struggling in the same ballpark for truth with a capital T, uh, and religion is always more correct than science in this matter. And if not, then you allegorize in, in, in order to uh, be reconciled with science. Whereas he's saying something else. The primary objective of religious doctrine is not to explain what is, but rather to form us, to shape us, and to advance us in the spiritual uh, yearning towards perfection. What is most important is the Torah's interior. The inner meaning of the subjects and this message will become greater still in places where there is a counterforce which motivates us to become strengthened by it. So what he's saying here is that um, we should absolutely welcome and relish new contradictions because they are what goads us to, he uses this expression, expand the palace of Torah, not that it should be identical with the uh, tenets of science, but it should be able to accommodate science within it and give it a spiritual meaning, Okay. Now we come to a very interesting, I don't think I'm going to read it out, but I'm happy that you should take it home and read it on your own. Uh, Rav Kook, in a very long passage, talks about basic changes in modern thought. In the first paragraph, uh, he says, very often, We have certain ideas, especially in religion, that have been conventionally been associated with other ideas in science. So we think that the two necessarily belong together. And when something gets jostled in the scientific picture and gets thrown out or modified, we think, oy vavoy, now our whole religion has to go through out the window because these two were connected. And he says you have to be much more discerning and see what was essential uh, to religion in the previous scientific idea, and perhaps everything can be shed because nothing was essential at all. And then he talks about three basic disciplines in modern times, scientific disciplines, which did not collaborate with each other, but nevertheless in each of these three realms there has been a shift in scientific thinking which goes in the same direction even though they didn't collude, uh, uh, um, collaborate with each other. The, 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 the new direction is parallel in all three and uh, this causes some kind of uh, switch in our religious perspective. The three areas are one, anthropology, two, cosmology, and three, biology or Darwinism. So first he talks about anthropology. And this was remarkably prescient on his uh, uh, part because uh, the uh, the, um, process that he's talking about is even much more accentuated today in our age of globalization. What he says was, Uh, I'm giving it in different words. He doesn't say it in exactly the same way. Uh, In anthropology, um, influenced by 19th century uh, ideas of nationalism, whatever, we used to think that every society is like an island on its own. It's hermetically sealed, and it expresses its spirit in its language, in its law, in its culture in its customs, in its way of dress, whatever. And he says here, we Jews were the worst perpetrators of this, partly because of anti-Semitism and partly because we deliberately cultivated our own special, you know, the Midrash talks about in Egypt, why were we not assimilated? Because we kept our own names and uh, our own language. And What was the third thing? I don't know. I I can't remember anymore. Does anybody... Um, uh, Whereas now, suddenly we're discovering that uh, if somebody sneezes in... He doesn't use these words, but if somebody sneezes in Honolulu, you have reparations in Timbuktu. That nothing is unconnected with anything else. And the whole whole world, the whole cosmos, we're a web of interconnected uh, relations. So that is in uh, social thought. Not just
2: physically connected as the theory but socially connected.
1: It. That's right, yeah. But socially, but it also is uh, also culture. Like it up with a new idea, yeah, know, yeah, yeah.
2: Somebody will refute it until <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Right, <laughs> right. Okay.
1: Now we've got the internet. There. We just can't. Uh, Uh, You can look at the bottom of page four. Unique individuals, the sages of great understanding, and here he's talking about the mystics, always knew the secret of spiritual unity. They knew that the human spirit is universal, although many divergences, uh, spiritual and material, distinguish one person from another Mm -hmm. and one society from another. Uh, Okay, blah, blah. Times have changed. But but this wasn't a knowledge of the masses, and now times have changed, and uh, even the masses understand this. And so in this next paragraph, uh, times have brought an absolute change. I'm skipping a few sentences, but here the process of evaluation becomes formidable. The possible confusion increases the need to learn how to integrate a variegated thought system within the narrow sphere of the conventional ideas of the masses and still make sure that all that is beneficial in that spiritual world remains unaffected even after the revolution wrought by alien influences, drawing from everything only that which is good, true, equitable, and worthy, this has now become terribly urgent. And we see this in our society, you know, we're all a global village, yet each the community tries to create some identity of its own in order to uh, feel oriented in the world. Okay. Next, he goes on to cosmological thought, has also led to a great change in the development of spiritual life. And here he repeats the idea that we saw before, that once we had a miniature version of the world, and we thought we were at the center, and now all of a sudden we see that we're part of a huge cosmos. And so that, again shifts our whole uh, self-image. Now we're not the center of everything and uh, how do we adjust our sense of identity when we know we're part of a huge, huge uh, cosmos that uh, we we don't even know where it leads. Uh, Our whole sense of our importance is proportionately changed. And then page six, uh, second paragraph, the concept of evolution which has become widespread everywhere due to new studies of nature, has wrought a major revolution in the circle of those accustomed to conventional thinking. Again, he says, this is not the case regarding the enlightened individuals, masters of thought. Again, he's referring to the Kabbalists, the mystics, who always conceived of gradual development, even in the realm of the spiritual, which they viewed with profound mystic probing, For them, it was not strange to conceive the development of the material world in a similar fashion. What he's saying is the Kabbalists always spoke about the infinite one and from the infinite one, uh, rather than our world was not created ex nihilo, but actually there was a series of emanations, more like births from a pregnant woman than something fashioned from the outside. And so if the Kabbalists, already were used to that idea that one thing emanates from another from the top down, it was no big deal for them to adjust now to the theory of evolution, and the same goes from the top <coughs> up, from the bottom up. So that the idea that now we are related to the monkeys and what happens in plant life also has uh, affects human life and the other way around, and that we have what to learn from uh, lower levels of uh, of being that 's not so difficult for them, okay uh, uh, for them it is indeed appropriate to envision its emergence as paralleling the unfolding of the spiritual dimension of existence, which does not envision anys skips or leaped over steps, but the multitude and the masses were not used to this. Uh, idea of evolution, and so it was very hard to uh, adjust to this religiously. They were not accustomed to uh, understand the principle of evolution in such an all-embracing manner, and was unable to comprehend its spiritual world in such terms. The difficulty, what was the difficulty of the masses in readjusting their thinking? It wasn't the problem of telling certain verses in the Torah or other traditional statements with the view of evolution. The problem with the masses when they are confronted with Darwinism wasn't because the literal psukim of the Torah tell us a different story why is that not a problem this task is simple enough all acknowledge that parable allegory intimation is common in such matters that this is a basic interpretive principle everywhere even the multitude is accustomed to be- to hearing the curt degree that this particular verse or statement belongs to the secrets of Torah, which transcend its literal meaning, and is satisfied thereby aligning with the scope of the thinker who senses the secret of lofty poetry to be found in the exposition of ancient riddles. What he's saying is, the problem with the masses isn't because theory of evolution, contradicts the literary, me, literal meaning of Torah, because they're already used to the idea when the Torah is talking about such profound things as creation, you can't explain it in a literal fashion, and you have to talk in allegoric. And uh, that already, how do you say? They're reconciled after with that explanation. But so what is the problem? But how to reconcile the spiritual implications of his previous thoughts, which were all concentrated round the concept of suddenness and leaps in creation, which spared the mind from poking into realms distant from its own circle with the new increasingly <coughs> popular con- concept of evolution. For this, there is need of great illumination. In other words, the real problem was the image of ourselves, not the, how to reconcile with the Sukim of the Torah, that we can manage. But how do we view ourselves? Once we thought, man is the pinnacle of creation. We are special. We are unique. We have nothing to do with anything else. And now we see that we're connected to all these lower realms of thought. How do we we adjust to that spiritually? And what Rav Kuk implies in the last section and again, develops elsewhere, is that this notion of um, interconnectedness did not come by chance, but because we are now ready to graduate beyond a monotheistic picture. Monotheism is necessary. We have to think in terms of a personal god who stands over and above us and watches over us. But that is only useful up to a point. Once we have graduated spiritually, that image does not suffice because our spiritual yearning is greater. And we would like to feel that God is not up there in his perfection and we are down here as lowly worms And have nothing to aspire, because everything we do is so far away from that. But just as we are related to lower forms of being, so also we are related to higher forms of being. And we are actually on a continuum with God. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a striking idea. Um, But he was very... he regarded a pantheistic view or a panentheistic view where we are part of God but God is more than us as closer to the truth than the ordinary monotheistic view which, you know, when he davened he davened to our Lord in heaven and so forth but when he writes in his personal diaries or when he writes um, more philosophically he never talks about God in personal terms he uses abstract nouns God is holiness, God is will, God is wisdom, God is light, and uh, God is not uh, a person, only bigger than us. Um, so this is an aspect of Ruff Cook's theology. Now I want to talk to you about theology in general, which I said, American Jews in particular. Yeah? Sorry, can I
0: ask one question? About yeah. That? I always thought that pantheism was still incorporated within a monotheism, in that God is within everything and yet still greater than everything, but that's all harmonized in just one sort of one unity. And you're saying that actually it goes beyond monotheism?
1: Uh, Your def- I wouldn't say what you were, you were saying just now is a definition of monotheism. The truth is that there are kernels of those ideas in Chazal when uh, uh, the Rabbanim say, God yeah, is the place of the world, but uh, the world is not His place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, but these are, are rare statements. There are kernels of these ideas which He certainly can build upon. But if you read the Tanakh, God is uh, is a big uh, Lord. Yeah, yeah. And uh, ordinary, popular talk and the way we daven, that's the way we talk. He's the warrior. He's the judge. He's the but but he. He's standing over above us and ruling us. Um, Theology. In my career, uh, I've heard um, various uh, definitions of what is a theologian. Uh, I've heard people say a theologian is really a, a person who started out as a religious believer and kills his religion with a 1,001 qualifications. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And another, that um, a theologian is a philosopher who's trying to convince himself that he believes. Uh, I prefer a more subtle uh, definition, which is number 10. An honest religious thinker is like a tightrope walker. He almost looks as though he were walking on nothing but air. His support is the slenderest imaginable, and yet it really is possible to walk on it. So you might say that Rav Kook is Wittgenstein's honest religious thinker because he is attempting in this whole vision of the relationship between doubt and faith to view doubt in a dialectic manner, which you can always somehow capitalize upon and use for the purposes of faith. Maybe I should already open out uh, the the discussion when you think about that. But I think I'm going to already lead you to a new kind of Although American Jewry is still stuck before Rav Kook, in Israel there are certain um, uh, little movements that are moving beyond Rav Kook. Uh, New Age, uh, neo broslov type of religiosity. Uh, two thinkers whom I'm thinking of who both died of cancer within the past few years and were... Um, Important in um, developing this new mo- movement. Their names are Rav Froman and Rav Shagar. Rav Froman, you might have, I doubt whether any of uh, Rav Shmuel, yes, but uh, whether the rest of you have heard of Rav Shagar, who was a very deep thinker. Uh, but Rav Froman, you might have heard of in a different uh, political context because he was this flamboyant um, uh, Rav of. Uh, the mixed uh, settlement, mixed religious sec- secular tkoa, who was very much for developing a peace process in which um, you would appeal to the religious leaders of Islam rather than the politicians and suggest that uh, really uh, Islam uh, and um, uh, Jewish religious leaders have a common cause. Their common enemy is Tel Aviv. And... <laughs> and uh, on that basis, uh, he was for creating a um, binational uh, or, or a state with no borders in which uh, both Arabs and Jews could live freely wherever they wanted in Israel without moving anybody and just give up the idea of uh, the modern nationalism. Um, but I'm bringing here, the, 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 they've just put out a little pamphlet in Hebrew of some of the gems of his um, uh, religious shirin that he gave. Uh, So he writes as follows. In truth, the world is filled with tragedy. Existence is laden with many inner contradictions. So he's recognizing the same contradictions that Rav Kook sees. The difference between me and Rav Kook is that Rav Kook triumphed over them with a harmonistic approach meaning you know you have dialectic and then uh, and I triumph over them with humor
2: <laughs>
1: and we have to think about what does he mean by that in life there are big and important things that the only way to handle them is through laughter in laughing at them you grant them their respect mm-hmm. there are things that if you grasp them directly and express them as they are in and of themselves, you will diminish them. They will become banal. Laughter, which precedes learning, is like a handle. It is the only way that allows you to grasp a boiling pot. Sometimes, and this is what we're going to end up with, I think that all of theology, all religions, and all words spoken in the world about God spring only from the need to explain the simple, instinctive human activity called prayer. A person prays, and he needs to explain to himself to whom he is praying and why he is praying, what is he doing. So he gives all of this the name of God and builds an entire religious worldview around it. But the core of it all is prayer. That's I have a colleague who was dying of cancer, um, we once met a group just a few days before he passed away, and he said to the group, um, I pray not because I believe in God, but I believe in God in order to pray. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think about all this? (laughs) Uh, we have about ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, it, it. Yeah.
2: There's been a television show recent, the last few years, uh, portraying a couple of Russian spies living in nineteen sixties America mm-hmm. and, Americans. Mm-hmm. and um, the Americans, and they have a daughter who's joined the church. teenage daughter, and the mother at one point is asking the daughter, well, what what is this praying stuff? And the daughter says, when you start off just saying things and just talking out of your heart, and all of a sudden, it really feels like somebody's listening. mm
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, here...
2: It's, it's very close to what he's saying. Right. No. But
1: here, sometimes he's, uh, he says, I pray. I'm not even sh- I don't know. Is somebody listening? Is he not? Right. But I need to pray? Okay. But it, this really comes... Um, all this is um, an offshoot. I'm going to get in deep waters here.
2: Um,
1: uh, no, but I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I really feel a mission in order to introduce you to this a bit, even though we've got only 10 minutes. Rav Cook and Rav Shigar and Rav Froman are all really developments of... Uh, an idea that began with Lurianic Kabbalah. Um, Luria was a 16th century mystic who tried to resolve the problem: How are there emanations if God is all? And so he talks about uh, there. There are roots of this in previous Kabbalah, but he develops that the world uh, began like a pregnancy. There was a contraction. Uh, if you imagine, God is an uh, unlimited circle. At some inner point, there was a t- contraction in order to make space for something other than he. Mm-hmm. And in that space of nothing, then the emanations came down. Now, the uh, he was a visionary, he wasn't a philosopher, but some of his uh, more philosophically inclined disciples uh, began to question... Um, How can we talk about uh, uh, like these um, diet um, advertisements before and after God was like this and then he was like... Uh, And so they said that this whole um, uh, concept of creation by creating a void is merely uh, an illusion. And if you think of uh, drops in a sea... And the sea doesn't see the drops as uh, individual selves. But because of its movements, the drop feel a sense of its droppedness and see themselves in opposition to the sea. So what, what these um, um, disciples of the Ari suggested was that uh, this whole idea of uh, contraction, tzimtzum in Hebrew, uh, was only an illusion there was a covering up of a certain area of God's infinite space, which created an illusion of object and subject, uh, creator and created being. But actually, from God's point of view, all is still one. Um, I won't talk about Rav Cook's um, um, take on all this, but this was a very fruitful idea. I say I have a mission in explaining it because I think that it really has influenced uh, very profoundly all of traditional thought without much, m- most people. It, it, it comes up in Hasidut uh, and in Mitnadut and in the Muslim movement and in Rav Kook and Rav Soloveitchik. They, all of them appropriate this idea in various ways. Uh, Rav Nachman of Bratislav, um would say, and this is Froman uh, repeating, we are living in the void. We are living in the void, so by definition, we cannot see God. If we see God, then it's already, the void is gone. So it's something like, the, he says it, like um, the lover who talks about the woman of his dreams, but the minute he has the woman of his dreams, she's not the woman of his dreams anymore. And so that's what he's saying here. I'm praying, but I'm praying out of a feeling I I need to, but I, I, I don't even expect an answer, or I'm not sure of an answer, or I will live in doubt. I will never know the answer, but I need to pray. And theology is built on that. But really, the meaning of religion is just a feeling of yearning, Feeling of hope, a feeling of dependence, something very gutsy. And all our dogmas are just an attempt to formulate what really can't be formulated. So that's the new wave in Israeli spirituality. But first you have to go through Rav cook and that's very rich experience too. What would you suggest?
2: Yeah, I mean, these are lovely bits mm-hmm. and pieces. What would you
1: suggest somebody starving? Uh, the truth is that lately um, there have been uh, several decent attempts to translate Riff Cook even though he's untranslatable. Um, there's a series of world Jewish classics edited by Benzion Boxer. There, is, there are some translations. You, uh, I'm, I'm just throwing out names. You'll find them on the internet. Um Yehuda Bersky, that's that's his biography. biography. Yeah. But if you want to learn sources, there are sources out there. There are about three or four books of uh, translated excerpts. And even though they sound very... St- I also translated somewhat freely. Um, there's always the problem in translating. Uh, do you want to be very um, close to his, his vocabulary or will you take license? So I took a bit of license simply that it should be more palatable because it sounds so stilted in English that it's off-putting. But it's... Ah, and there are books about uh, not only biography, but his thought, um, which I could recommend. There there are several books in English. Uh, Beni Ish Shalom and uh, Tzvi Aron and Yosef Ben Shlomo. And if you sat and learned this stuff, I think it would be very rewarding. I don't know if you want to make a bet midrash of Cook, but um, yeah. certainly for me, he has been a very influential spiritual hero. I have a painting of his uh, uh, of his face uh, above my computer, following me every day. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, if I, I in my teaching, I often say to students that if he hadn't been
2: born, I
0: would have had to invent him. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events, throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Bet to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.